Welcome to Dyslexia Uncovered. I'm your host, Tim Odegaard, and today's episode, The Origins of Dyslexia, we're starting to delve into the fascinating topic of dyslexia. As we embark on this journey to explore the origins of dyslexia, let's take a moment to consider the contemporary landscape we find ourselves today. Today, Dyslexia is universally recognized as a specific learning disability with a targeted impact on word reading, spelling, decoding, and reading fluency. This level of awareness is largely due to the efforts of so many over the past decade to work towards the passage of state legislation dedicated to dyslexia. At this point, dyslexia legislation is enacted in practically every state in the U.S. This legal recognition has firmly woven dyslexia into educational policies, with a consistent feature being the clear-cut characterization of what dyslexia is. The defining features of dyslexia echoed across state dyslexia laws are poor word reading, poor spelling, deficient decoding. Moreover, those of us with dyslexia often sound slow and labored as we're trying to read text on the page or the screen, highlighting our characteristic deficits in reading fluency. All of these features constitute the primary characteristics of dyslexia. They are typically included in widely adopted definitions, and each of these characteristics is explicitly mentioned in what is commonly known as the 2002 Consensus Definition of Dyslexia. So, what is the 2002 Consensus Definition? This definition stands as a kind of linchpin in dyslexia laws because it is the most widely adopted definition of dyslexia across them. And the opening statement of this definition encapsulates current thoughts and beliefs held by many about what dyslexia is and where it comes from. It opens with, dyslexia is a specific learning disability that is neurobiological in origin. This sentence is derived in part from the language included in the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, IDEA. IDEA is a U.S. federal law that mandates who will receive protections and services for a disability within public schools across the nation. One of those eligibility categories is specific learning disability. The intentional adoption of IDEA's language around specific learning disability reflects the anticipation that schools would be the primary place in which children would be identified and provided educational services for dyslexia. Equally striking is the assertion within the first sentence of the consensus definition that dyslexia is neurobiological in origin. The notion of dyslexia as a brain-based learning difference that a person is born with goes all the way back to the earliest case studies of dyslexia. So, let's immerse ourselves in the first case studies as we embark on a journey to uncover the origins of dyslexia. Part 1. The Boy Who Could Do Math To unpack the history of dyslexia that will lead to its modern realities, we need to go back to the late 1800s, where we meet Pringle Morgan, who encounters a peculiar young boy who struggled profoundly with reading and spelling words. Pringle Morgan would call this boy Percy F. when describing him in a case study published in the medical journal The Lancet in 1896. 
This case study is considered to be the first description of what we now call developmental dyslexia. Sure, I could review a contemporary case study to kick this off, or I could tell you how I struggled as a child to learn how to read and spell, and the persistent issues I face spelling words accurately and reading text fluently to this day. Or I could share with you the struggles that my son had learning to read and spell. But I come back to Percy F. time and time again, because as I have studied dyslexia, and I have learned from others who have studied it far longer than I have, I have been struck by how this first case study captures core features of dyslexia that we must still think about and consider today. So, who was Pringle Morgan? Well, he was a British naval medical officer who lived in Sussex in the south of England, a beautiful area characterized by its white cliffs and rolling fields. It was here that he came across a child who, despite the best efforts of his teachers, struggled to read and spell words. To help us understand Percy F., I'll borrow Pringle Morgan's own words by reading short excerpts directly from that Lancet article. As I do, I will add commentary to help us contextualize and unpack this first case study as we link it to where we find ourselves today. Pringle Morgan introduced us to this child by starting with a little case history. So, let's get into it. Percy F., a well-grown lad, aged 14, is the eldest son of intelligent parents, the second child of a family of seven. He has always been a bright and intelligent boy, quick at games, and in no way inferior to others of his age. His great difficulty has been, and is now, his inability to learn to read. This inability is so remarkable and so pronounced that I have no doubt it is due to some congenital defect. Huh. What does it mean to say that Percy F. struggles are congenital? Pringle Morgan used the term congenital to describe Percy F. struggles to indicate that these difficulties were present from birth. In the context of dyslexia, saying that Percy F.'s challenges were congenital, Pringle Morgan implies that the issues with learning to read and spell were not acquired later in life, but were part of Percy F.'s developmental profile right from the beginning. This term underscores the idea that dyslexia is a neurobiological condition with roots in early brain development. The use of congenital suggests that Percy F.'s difficulties with reading and spelling weren't a result of external factors or lack of instruction or effort on his part, but rather an inherent aspect of his neurobiological functioning. This stands in contrast to the prior case studies that have been published. These prior case studies reported on adults who had been fully literate but acquired selective deficits in their ability to read and spell as a result of some medical condition or injury that impacted their brain. Percy F., on the other hand, did not acquire an inability to read and spell. Rather, he always experienced difficulties learning to do these things, despite having been provided with instruction and working his tail off. Returning to the words of Pringle Morgan, we learn even more about the case of Percy F. Percy F. has been at school or under tutor since he was seven years old and the greatest efforts have been made to teach him to read. But in spite of this laborious and persistent training, he can only with difficulty spell out words of one syllable. As we pause here, you will note that Percy F. struggles to both read and spell simple words, and that he and his teachers had put considerable efforts in hopes 
that he would learn to do so. These are core features of dyslexia commonly mentioned in more recent definitions. Both word reading and spelling deficits are primary characteristics of dyslexia, and the difficulties those of us with dyslexia have learning to acquire these literacy skills is a hallmark characteristic of dyslexia. This is sometimes referred to as an instructional discrepancy. The child is receiving instruction and intervention, but the rate of learning is far slower than would be expected, signaling that it's likely going to take considerable effort to set this child up for literacy and success in life. To highlight some of these points, let's return to Pringle Morgan's own words. He knows all of his letters and can write them and read them. In writing from dictation, he comes to grief over any but the simplest words. His father informs me that the greatest difficulty was found in teaching the boy his letters. Here, we see a hallmark feature that we commonly use today as an indicator to find children who are at risk of developing the reading and spelling issues characteristic of dyslexia. Percy F. had a very hard time learning his letters. Struggles with letters put a child at elevated risk for future reading and spelling difficulties. This wouldn't have been known in the late 1800s. However, subsequent research has clearly indicated that there are key early emergent literacy skills that we can measure in children that give us a good idea about how much effort and intensified instruction and intervention we're going to have to give them to set them up for future success. Sadly, the case study gives us plenty of evidence that Percy F. experienced profound reading struggles. Here's one more excerpt. I then asked him to read me a sentence out of an easy child's book. He did not read a single word correctly, with the exception of, and, the, of, and that. The other words seemed to be quite unknown to him, and he could not make even an attempt to pronounce them. This, of course, is not shocking to me who's lived with dyslexia my entire life and parents a child and supports children and adults in their pursuit to overcome the challenges of dyslexia, that the words that he would be able to read would be and, the, of, and that. High-frequency words commonly found in readers that through repetition and correction, he probably learned to memorize and read. And I'm not surprised that he isn't able to read even the simplest of words. It isn't easy for those of us in our community to learn to read words, to spell words. So why would it be shocking and surprising that the first child ever identified and reported on who we would now say had developmental dyslexia would struggle so profoundly in this way? However, there's another side of the story. So let's read on. He writes, I next tried his ability to read figures and found he could do so easily. He read off quickly the following. And guys, let me tell you, this is a super long number. And work out correctly. And here we have a algebraic expression that'll take the FOIL method to solve. He was able to do those things. As I highlighted earlier, dyslexia is often characterized by its primary deficits in word reading, spelling, reading fluency, decoding and the extreme amount of effort it takes for those of us with dyslexia to acquire these life skills. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily are going to be incapable of doing other things academically. I mean, I actually was pretty adept at math, and by the time I left elementary school, it was in the advanced math group, even though I was in the dumb-dumb reading group and deemed too stupid to have dyslexia. I mean, that's my story. But what about Percy F.? I mean, he was able to read and spell some words. I mean, that's without question. And this is in contrast to the earlier case studies that have been reported at this time of adults 
who had acquired reading deficits after some kind of a brain injury. These cases were often profound cases, and the adults were unable to read even a single word, the and of, not something that they could do. This distinction is important to keep in mind. The early case studies and the small sample studies that took place after Percy F's case was reported started to confirm that reading and spelling deficits fall along a continuum of severity. Some people experience far more pronounced deficits with reading and spelling, whereas others struggle less. Also, the ease with which children can learn in response to intensive instruction intervention also falls along a continuum. My research has long explored what distinguishes children who easily respond to highly intensive sustained intervention versus those who make much slower gains even to the most intensive sustained intervention. They're not non-responders. They are learning, but the rate of learning is much, much slower. And I would say that their dyslexia is far more profound. This is the topic that is going to be crucial for us to keep uncovering and exploring and trying to understand more about as we strive to meet the needs of our community. Transitioning back to the case study, I do want to highlight something that always strikes me when I read it. I am always struck by how highly the adults in this child's life thought of him. As we return to the case study, we learn that nobody is doubting that Percy F. is bright. Pringle Morgan wrote, The schoolmaster who had taught him for several years says that he would be the smartest lad in the school if the instruction were entirely oral. I find it heartwarming that Percy F. had champions who thought him more capable than his reading and spelling struggles might make a person think. One of the conclusions that we have drawn from a much more recent line of research is that individuals with dyslexia are capable of learning. And as we continue to explore these topics in future episodes, we will return to this point. Because one of the consequences that can befall many of us who struggle with learning to read and spell is that we can become labeled as educational misfits rejects who aren't capable of learning, who are not worthy of the effort it will require to equip us with literacy. As if we are part of a lower caste of society, unworthy of access to educational advancement and opportunities made possible through literacy. But there will be plenty of time to discuss such topic in future episodes. Part 2. Word Blindness early ideas about dyslexia. In the preceding section, we delved into Pringle Morton's case study on Percy F., exploring the challenges he faced with reading and spelling, as well as his aptitude for math. What we haven't explored yet is Pringle Morgan's interpretation of the congenital condition he believed Percy F. had and its root cause. Let's return to the case study to uncover Pringle Morgan's thoughts because, at that time, Case studies were the forefront of research. Now, let's take a moment to appreciate the significance of case studies in understanding language functions, as articulated by Norman Geshwin in 1972. He wrote in Scientific American, Virtually everything we know about how the functions of language are organized in the human brain has been learned from abnormal conditions under abnormal circumstances. It was through conditions like those documented in case studies that we began to comprehend the intricacies of language and how it is organized in the brain. However, it's crucial to recognize that science evolves continuously. While case studies and neuropsychological testing were pivotal in their time, today's non-invasive non-imaging methods offer 
you know, a complementary way of understanding conditions like dyslexia. They allow us to enhance our understanding, ask different questions in a different way. But returning to Pringle Morgan's case study, he observed Percy F. seems to have no power of preserving and storing up the visual impressions produced by words. Hence, the words, though seen, have no significance for him. His visual memory for words is defective or absent, which is equivalent to saying that he has what Cusmall has termed word blindness. Well, who was Cusmall? Out of Cusmall, a German physician published a seminal paper in 1877 on one of the first documented cases of selective reading impairment due to brain injury in an adult. This case study was groundbreaking because it highlighted that reading deficits could exist independently of impairments in expressive or receptive oral language. Cusmall's work set the stage for others like James Henschelwood, a Scottish ophthalmologist who, in 1895, reported on an adult case of word blindness. Their findings indicated that brain injuries could lead to selective reading impairments, and they went on to suggest that the left angular gyrus was a potential culprit and that some form of a massive lesion could lead to these selective reading impairments. However, as science progresses, so do our interpretations. While early notions suggested visual memory deficits as the cause, modern research, including brain imaging studies like my own, challenged these ideas. Brain regions implicated in dyslexia don't show lesions, for example. That was demonstrated well before neuroimaging. And the concept of visual memory for words is more nuanced. It is, however, vital to recognize the accuracy in Pringle Morgan's depiction of Percy F., his struggles, and the selective nature of these learning differences. Percy F.'s intelligence and efforts were not lacking, nor in question. Rather, he faced challenges beyond his control. As we reflect on these historical insights, it becomes apparent that while our understanding evolves, the core struggles faced by individuals in our community persist. And these are not new ideas. In the least, James Henselwood would go on to study and write about congenital word blindness. He wrote the following in a paper he published in 1900 in the medical journal The Lancet. I have little doubt that these cases of congenital word blindness are by no means so rare as the absence of recorded cases would lead us to infer. Their rarity is, I think, accounted for by the fact that when they do occur, they are not recognized. It is a matter of the highest importance to recognize the cause and the true nature of this difficulty in learning to read, which is experienced by these children. Otherwise, they may be harshly treated as imbeciles or incorrigibles and either neglected or punished for a defect for which they are no way responsible. The recognition of the true character of the difficulty will lead the parents and teachers of these children to deal with them in the proper way, not by harsh and severe treatment, but by attempting to overcome the difficulty by patient and persistent training. Those words were written over 124 years ago, and to my ears, they still ring too true for what we experience in our community today. And the fight for legislative recognition and informed efforts to support those individuals like us is an ongoing battle 
fueled by the belief that, as James Hinchelwood wrote all those years ago, recognizing and addressing these difficulties is of the highest importance. Part 3, Putting It All Together, Where We Go From Here Reflecting on the historical journey into the origins of dyslexia, the insights drawn from the first reported case of developmental dyslexia profoundly shape our contemporary understanding of this condition. These implications reach far and wide, remaining a central focus in ongoing conversations surrounding dyslexia. A pivotal aspect that continues to fuel the dyslexia debate revolves around the consideration of biological determinism and the role of neurobiology in framing dyslexia as a construct. This nuanced topic demands careful exploration. Researchers, educators, parents, and policymakers grapple with a fundamental question. Is the goal to identify a literacy profile of individuals facing challenges in reading and spelling, irrespective of the cause? Or does the objective extend to finding evidence that the root cause of reading and spelling deficit lies in a neurobiological predisposition, a factor determined by a child's biology from birth? Engaging in this discourse proves inherently challenging, sparking debates among individuals with deeply entrenched beliefs about the essence of dyslexia and its role in shaping research, educational practices, and policy decisions. At the core of the matter is the unraveling of the intricate interplay between neurobiological predisposition and environmental influences. Understanding the dynamic factors contributing to a child's struggles with literacy, it urges us to dive into the intricate dance between genetics and environmental factors, seeking a comprehensive understanding of why some children face challenges in acquiring crucial literacy skills and what environmental factors we need to support and foster to allow all children to acquire literacy. This ongoing dialogue within the dyslexia community and others fosters fundamental questions about the nature of dyslexia itself. It challenges us to ponder whether dyslexia primarily stems from a neurobiological predisposition or manifests as a result of a myriad of environmental factors interacting with our neurobiology. The answers to these questions will significantly shape how we identify, support, and advocate for individuals with dyslexia, and it will help us understand if we need to move past the time in our community where we label some of us as true dyslexics and others as less than. Such distinctions only serve to divide those of us who have been left behind by educational systems ill-suited to meet our needs and that of our children and grandchildren, unless we rise up share our voices, and make a difference. I'll talk to you next time.